How does one experience joyful Messianic Judaism? Well, you, you clap at certain times, you pray out loud at certain times, you get interrupted at certain times, you pray in an undertone at certain times, you stand with feet together at certain times, you sit at certain times. Right, that's a secret, secret formula, right? For joyful Messianic Judaism is corporate conformity. No, well, corporate conformity has its place, especially in our narcissistic, narcissistic age, but it doesn't have any real direct connection to whether or not one is joyful. So we should ask the question again, how does one experience joyful Messianic Judaism? Well, we get some guidelines, not a magic formula, not a bumper sticker you can put on your car, or a t-shirt you can wear, but we do get some guidelines from Shimon Kepha in his first epistle, also known as Simon Peter. We're looking at, in the um, chapter, we'll start focus with chapter verse, one, verse four, but in chapter one, verse three, he had blessed Hashem. Kepha had blessed Hashem for causing us to be born, to be born again to a living hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. Resurrection from the dead. This hope is our cause of joy, and Kepha proceeds to expand upon it more in verse 4. In chapter 1, so in chapter 1, verse 4, he, Kepha says, we talked about being reborn in the previous verse. He said, reborn to what? To an inheritance that cannot decay, spoil, or fade, kept safe. For you in heaven. So Messianic Jews are Jews who have been born again, which is an expression, a common expression in some religious circles, but what does that mean? They're joyful Jews, hopefully, but why should being born again cause us to, why should this rebirth cause us to be joyful? Into what are we born again? Shimon Kepha says they were born again into an inheritance. A loving father provides a generous inheritance for his children if he's able. And such is the case with Avinu Shabashamayim, our father in heaven. But nothing which we possess, nothing which we physically possess in this world is infallibly secure. A few years ago, one thing people thought was pretty close to infallibly secure was a mortgage, right? You know, if you can get a mortgage, even if you can't afford to, even if it gets things turned bad, this was the, seemed to be the conventional thinking. If you can get a mortgage, and even if things turn bad, the worst that will happen, of course, housing prices always go up, and so the worst that will happen is you'll sell it, you know, and make out that way. But they didn't count on underwater mortgages, the whole basis of the great, the great um, recession. So even one of the things that people, and we could probably think of other things today that people think of as fairly secure in this world, are not infallibly secure. They, we, used to, we think of the world as being, as being before we understood plate tectonics and the like, um, they used to call it like solid, solid as a rock. And then I had a geology class and they had a video called the not so solid earth and they showed a video about, um, about um, magma under the earth and plate tectonics and then, um, and, um, and you don't feel so secure even standing on terra firma. 
But our inheritance from God is secure. How secure is it? Kepha lets it know, lets us know how secure it is with a negative. He lets us know how secure it is. He tells us what our inheritance is not. It is not subject to external decay, destruction, defilement, to internal fading. In the Brit Chadashah, inheritance, the word refers to a believer's share in the kingdom of God. Two examples, which I'd like to briefly look at, Ephesians 1.18 and Colossians 3.24. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that he will give light to the eyes of your hearts so that you will understand the hope to which he has called you, where, what rich glories there are in the inheritance he has promised his people. So the inheritance, the rich glories and the inheritance he's promised us. Colossians 3.24 says, Remember that as your reward, you will receive inheritance from the Lord. You are slaving for the Lord, for the Messiah. This spiritual inheritance is not subject to decay. Now, normally when you experience the physical world, the creation is subject to decay. Romans 8.19, Rav Shaul addresses this. The creation waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was made subject to frustration, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it. But it was given a reliable hope that it too would be set free from its bondage to decay and would enjoy the freedom accompanying the glory that God's children will have. So Ralph Scholl tells us of this bondage to decay in the very um, creation. But Kepha tells us in detail of our inheritance which is, we could call it, dare say, our emancipation proclamation. So, so what about defilement? Yeast is often used sim to symbolize what? Yeah. Well, yeah, but um, it yet symbolize sin because it defiles, obviously sometimes it's used in the positive sense of how something positive, maybe like we could think of a probiotic, a positive infection, we might call it, but generally it's used symbolically of sin, because sin defiles us. The prophet Habakkuk, sometimes anglicizes Habakkuk, once remarked that Hashem is too pure to tolerate evil. So in the midst, in chapter 1, verse 13, Habakkuk talk, I mean, he's dealing in that, pass, in that, in that book with why there, the evil seems to be triumphing, seems to be succeed evil in the world, but he knows, the specific he knows, he says, your eyes are too pure to see evil, he says to God. You cannot countenance oppression. So why do you countenance traitors? Why are you silent when evil people swallow up those more righteous than they? And um, you can do a study in more detail of his struggles, his coming to Hashem with why there's, e why there's evil in the world. Why do traitors seem to triumph? But he, the basic thing he knows, the reason it's a struggle for him is because he knows that God is too pure to look upon evil. In Hebrews 7.26, we also see, this is the kind of Kohen Gadol that meets our need, holy without evil, without stain, set apart from sinners and raised higher than the heavens. So the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, to represent the people before God. There needs to be an absence of stain. needs to have cleansed himself. Um, not my, some people think I'm a Kohen because my, my last name, Kashtan, commonly is a Kohanic last name. In my case, I'm not one. But um, 
If you know, there were restrictions upon the Kohen Gadol. They were restricted, and even today, a Kohen would typically would not, would not go into a cemetery, not have the same, the same requirements of mourning, except for the very closest relatives that, um, that other people have. So that's why Kohanim are restricted in, um, in going into a cemetery, for example. So if you want to read a book on how they deal with, um, with doctors who are Kohanim, that gets very interesting halakha. They go into detail, and at the end they say, if you're a Kohen and you haven't gone to medical school yet, maybe you should consider another profession. <laughs> but we know the purity that they need, representing God, the Kohen. This is talking about why Yeshua is a Kohen Gadol. Being pure without sin can represent us. So we know that defilement is a serious thing. Sin defiles. But our spiritual inheritance is pure, free from defilement. It will not spoil. It's not subject to decay. Now it may be true that old soldiers don't die. They just fade away. But our spiritual inheritance will not die, will not fade away. Two kings, King David, King, King Solomon, David Amelech, Shlomo Amelech. They were greater than their external enemies. Their glory was unparalleled. But glory faded somewhat from within. And both of them had some of their struggles, some of their service was because of impurity within, failure within. Our spiritual inheritance, on the other hand, will not succumb to outside pressures, nor will it fade within. So why is our inheritance secure? Because is it kept safe, kept safe for us in heaven? There's no safe, there's no electronic security system for you computer geeks, no firewall, no strong box that when faced with enough persistence, enough effort intelligence by thieves cannot be broken into, cannot be compromised but we need to lose no sleep at all over our inheritance. They say, well, you know, a wealthy man may be, he may be happy, but a poor man can sleep. So we need to lose no sleep. It is reserved for us in heaven by God. You could say the greatest security guard of all. Heard of Shomer Yisrael, the guardian of Yisrael. What is our inheritance? Okay, is it just in someday... What good does our inheritance do for us now? Will we even survive to enjoy this inheritance? In, back in our main text in Kepha's first epistle, first Kepha, first Peter 1.5, meanwhile through trusting, you are being protected. Protected by God's power for a deliverance ready to be revealed at the last time. We're under divine protection. We're witnesses under our own divine, um, like, like witnesses at federal trials have a, a um, witness protection program. But sometimes, unfortunately, that's had some failures. We have no such fear. We're protected by God's power. Will we remain faithful witnesses? Those protection are for people because they're important enough to testify, to be a witness to the truth in a serious situation. Well, are we going to be faithful witnesses to the truth of God's salvation? And in difficult days ahead, if it wasn't difficult, 
If there were no tribulations, there would be no need for a protection program. We have no anxiety. We need have no anxiety. We're part of Hashem's witness protection program. And we are reborn. Born again, he talked about, to a new identity in the body of Messiah. God protects us, but we have a role. It is through our faith that God protects us, our trust in him. We should not let a veneer of humility keep us from accepting this truth. God sometimes or often works through someone or something, through an, through an event, in that instance, or through some agent to accomplish his will. In that instant, it is Messiah's resurrection through which God works. When God protects his people, he does it through their trust. Uh, Martin Buber taught that, um, that sometimes the word faith, in, sometimes the way it's used, it implies, um, it implies merely belief in a certain religious doctrine. And that's, that's one reason why he thought trust was a better translation. It, um, it, um, it showed it was more complex, transcended just belief in a certain um, religious doctrine. But for what deliverance, excuse me, but for what are we protected? We're protected for deliverance, but what is this deliverance, this salvation? In, in the second chapter of Kepha's first epistle, first Kepha, first Peter 2, 2, it says, be like newborn babies, thirsty for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into deliverance. This deliverance in the fullest realized sense is the future full possession of all the joys of inheritance, which we desire to grow more worthy of and which we will be, to which we will be fully revealed when Mashiach returns at the last time. We can see, okay, we have a great deliverance, wonderful. We have divine protection, wonderful. We apparently will face various trials, well, it's not so wonderful. But if it happens, it happens. We might like to know how we should behave in times of trial. What purpose do they serve? Verse 6 of First Kepha, chapter 1. Rejoice in this, even though for a little while you may have to experience grief in various trials. It's disputed whether, whether Shimon Kepha is, is he, is this an imperative or is this indicative? Is he saying, rejoice, commanding it, or is he still stating a basic fact? You know, the fact is you are rejoicing. Well, either way, whether he's commanding it or stating a fact of what is already a reality, either way, rejoicing is the behavior which is expected from followers of Yeshua, from believers during times of trial. Well, why? Why are you expected to be joyful in times of trial? You know, if I stepped down and, and God forbid, broke my ankle, oh, that's great I'm, that I broke my ankle. Are we supposed to be messianic masochists? <laughs> well, I don't think so, of course. Kepha was referring to genuine joy, not some sort of sick pleasure. Rejoice is not a continual feeling of hilarity, nor a denial of the reality of pain and suffering. 
but an anticipatory joy experienced even now because believers know their inheritance is sure. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says, this is why we do not lose courage. Though our outer self is heading for decay, our inner self is being renewed daily. For our light and transient troubles are achieving for us an everlasting glory whose weight is beyond description. We concentrate not on what is seen, but on what is not seen, since things are temporary, since things seen are temporary, excuse me, but things not seen are eternal. So it's not a matter of denying the tribulations, it's not denying the tsuris, but it's having a wider perspective, a broader perspective on reality, looking beyond simply the present tsuris. I will say, Baruch Hashem, I've had probably, I wasn't raised in a wealthy family, but I've had probably a fairly cushy life. Um, I've read that one of the great difficulties, tribulations, now that college students go through, it's not that, oh, they're away from home, they're getting involved in relationships they shouldn't, they're abusing alcohol or drugs, um, they didn't have sufficient study skills, those probably are actually, but one of the great tribulations that students having to go through now, they have to deal with students that have, on political issues, different views than them. And they feel threatened by that. So some schools have set up, um, I've heard they've set up like safe zones and areas where you can go and find a, um, they have like puppies for you to pet and the like. Um, but on the other, and in, in a sense, it sounds like I'm being, like I'm, um, like I'm being, um, Cruel and cruel and criticizing that, and that's only partly true. But um, <laughs> I do know people. You do have your own. You do have your own frame of reference. I mean, I had I had to go through a medical procedure a couple weeks ago, and that was like the my life. You know, I we tempted. You know, if I only permitted it, I'd have to consider suicide rather than go through this. But I couldn't do that. So I mean, people do have their own frame of reference. What's difficult? But seriously, I know a number. A number of you I know, just in the few years I've known some of you have gone through some significant trials, more severe than anything I have ever faced. I did, I get, did get to meet with a family member of one of our, of our congregation and um, just some of the, um, just a few, just what, what I was made privy to, a few of the difficulties that this person just through maybe carelessness is too strong of a word, but um, things that would be easily avoidable was um, was not a sense was not for me encouraging. And I know that some of you have gone through very difficult trials, and some of you probably it just you don't want to talk about them; they're too painful. So um, you'd be quite correct and say, "Okay, Cashton, it would be easy for him to say rejoice, you know, from uh, middle class America," but. Um, the encouragement which I can share with you is Shimon Kefa's encouragement. In this, in our rebirth, our inheritance, our protection, we should rejoice. Even during trials which are manifold, but of relatively short duration when compared with the reward which awaits us. The, this is from the Art of Jewish Prayer, Yitzhak Kirchner. Trials are hard enough in and of themselves, in and of themselves, but it helps if we can see some purpose. 
It says, it is only in retrospect that we truly understand the meaning of why we must go through certain difficulties. At that point, we can praise God for both our salvation and our troubles. Since the Jews of the Red Sea sang a song not only for their salvation, but for all the preceding crises they teach. The angels exclaimed that God caused salvation to grow slowly over time. The event of the Red Sea was only a culmination of a long process of salvation. So we don't always see as you know, so we see through a glass darkly. The, I've mentioned before Senator Irvin, Sam Irvin, I can't remember if it was North Carolina or South Carolina. He was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate during the Watergate scandal. He said that one of the redeeming aspects of the Civil War, he said at least, was there were some redeeming results. You know, as bad as, as terrible as the war was, still the most Americans killed in any war have been in the Civil War. At least the Union was stronger, there was an end to slavery, there were some redeeming aspects to it. But he saw nothing redeeming, you know, why is it even, what's the point of it? Similarly, we would like to see some redeeming value, some purpose to the trials which you must endure. And we won't, I don't know, we'll see any, we won't have a full perspective on that any time this side of the kingdom. But the purpose, this purpose is what Kepha addresses next, the last verse we'll look at. In the main text, 1 Kepha 1.7, even gold is tested for genuineness by fire. The purpose of these trials is so that your trust's genuineness, which is far more valuable than perishable gold, will be judged worthy of praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Yeshua the Messiah. An ancient Jewish writing from Yeshua ben Sirach, sometimes known as Ecclesiasticus, says, prepare yourself for trials, for gold is tested in fire and acceptable men in the furnace of humiliation. The testing of the genuineness of our trust is compared by Kepha with the testing of the genuineness of a precious metal. A similar analogy is found in Michelet 27, Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible tests silver and the furnace tests gold, but a person is tested by his reaction to praise. So what is truly, we're tested by what is our true priority in life. Shimon Kepha also speaks of praise, along with glory and honor. Such awaits genuine spiritual trust in the day of disclosure. <clears throat> now this is true from two perspectives. The believer whose trust is proven genuine will receive praise, glory, and honor. But more important, not just it's not just you will be vindicated with those of us, those of our community who trust, whose trust is proven genuine through trials will be a cause of praise, glory, and honor accorded to God himself, to Hashem. He will be shown to be, to be worthy of genuine spiritual trust. <clears throat> Remember Moses, is one of his concerns was if Israel did not survive was how that will affect upon how he is perceived in Egypt. You know, we couldn't bring his people through Egypt. Well, an hour of vindication will be in a sense of vindication. Of greater, showed great, God will be shown to be of greater worth, excuse me, to be worthy of genuine spiritual trust. And it will be clear why he has such joyful children. I've spoken about inheritance as part of joyful messianic Judaism. 
you know, if, if you have a desire for that joy, and if you haven't, why not fully embrace your inheritance in the mishpacha, in the family of Mashiach, Yeshua? Thank you. We'll continue with the service.